Good morning. I, uh, I know we're a couple of days removed from the celebration of Christmas, and I uh, hope it was a good time and a good time of fellowship and family that you were able to have together. Some of you may be from out of town. Some of you, maybe you came back from out of town. But what did we celebrate? We celebrated the birth of our Savior, and uh, we celebrate that it was a virgin birth. Was it a miraculous birth? Was it any different than what millions of women experience every day, what many of you have experienced? Yeah, life is, the birth of a child seems to be miraculous, but it's normally done in a normal way. I think what we really celebrated was the miraculous conception of Jesus by Mary without a male being involved. That was the miracle. And I'm thinking, is it really necessary to believe that? I know that, that many doubt it. Um, there are um, many that teach that this is myth. This is just a myth that was important in the first century. Um, some deny it that it could possibly be a virgin birth. Uh, Larry King, the popular TV host and journalist, was once asked if he could choose anyone from history to interview, who would that person from history be and what would they ask him? Or what would he ask them? And Larry King responded that, um, I would like to interview Jesus Christ, and my one question I'd like to ask him is, was he born of a virgin? And he said that um, the answer to that question, Larry King said, would explain history for me. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, an important, it's an important question. It's a controversial question. Um, believe, does believing that make it so hard for other people to, to want to believe it, this, this um, miraculous conception of Jesus by Mary? Well, I think it's important to believe it. I think we need to understand it. And I'd like to give you today 10 reasons to believe that the conception of Jesus by Mary was miraculous and no male was involved. Now, if you already believe it, then this will give you 10 reasons that you can talk to other people about. And if you don't believe it, maybe this will be, help, help you to believe it. But I also have a second objective. I'd like to take a few minutes to explain what I think is probably one of the most controversial and debated messianic prophecies out of the book of Isaiah chapter 7. And I will start with that first with the, with the portion in Isaiah chapter 7 because that also leads me into my first reason for believing that the, that in the virgin birth. Now, I know that uh, many teach, and many famous theologians teach, that the, birth, the, the virgin birth was necessary because sin is passed on through the male seed, and that um, Mary had to be born of a virgin to prevent, uh, excuse me, Jesus had to be born of a virgin to prevent him from inheriting the sin nature. And I know that's a popular view, and many theologians believe that. It may be true. I, I, don't, I don't believe it. I, I think that uh, every woman here who's married and, and every um, woman here who has a boyfriend or brother would probably believe that, yeah, that's true, that the sin is passed down through the male species. <laughs> and maybe some of you even poked. Uh, I know, I understand. You remember yesterday? Uh, but then I wonder if often those who come up with that theory uh, have ever been married? Oh, I thought I'd get a bigger laugh than that. But I, I don't think that, it, that anybody's been married, any, any man who's got a girlfriend, a sister, you know, know that the, it's not the male species that has a corner on sin. But I know that some people believe it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin to prevent the sin from being inherited. I personally believe that sin, the sin nature is passed on through both male and female. Um, and what protected Jesus from inheriting the sin nature was the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. We find in the, in the book of Luke, when Luke says that 
that, that, that what will come upon Mary is the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, and the product of that overshadowing will be two things. Something that's holy, meaning without sin, and something that is called the Son of God, meaning deity. So for me, then, I can't claim that reason as being why Jesus had to be born of a virgin so to prevent the sin nature. For you, that's your first reason. For me, I, I haven't come to my first reason yet. But I'd like to, uh, to, to begin with the controversial passage in Isaiah. Here it is. It's probably the most debated of all of them. 7.14 to 16 of Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Well, I need to look a little bit closer at this in the context. I'm not going to take time to go through all 16 verses here in Isaiah. We don't have time to do that. But let me give you a brief background. And if you're looking in Isaiah chapter 7, some of the terms in there will be as in the following summary. What we have here is King Ahaz, who's the king of the southern kingdom, of the divided kingdom. He's king of Judah. He's not a very good king. He's not a very righteous king. He has denied God. He's not trusted in God. He has practiced pagan religious beliefs. He's led his people in pagan uh, religious beliefs. He has sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. He's even made and created molten images and idols of the Baals, and they're worshiping them. Basically, he's just led about a lack of restraint in Judah, and he's very unfaithful to God. So he's not a very righteous and a godly king. That's who Judah is. And he's being attacked and surrounded by and captives are being taken from him by two smaller kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, whose, whose king is Pekah in this, in this set, uh, set of scriptures, and another small country, Aram, whose king is uh, Rezin. So he's under siege, he's being attacked, and in Isaiah chapter 7 here, verse 3, it just, uh, verse 2 basically says the heart of his heart and the heart of his people are, are shaking like a forest is shaken in the wind. They're afraid because of these two smaller kingdoms attacking them. He's got continual trouble. Third thing that Ahaz has done, he has sent gold and silver and messengers to the king of Assyria, the large nation who is giving the Middle East all kinds of trouble, to buy protection from these two smaller nations. So here's Ahaz, an unrighteous king. He and his people are afraid, shaking like trees in the forest. He's sent to buy protection from Assyria, from these two smaller kingdoms. That's the circumstances. And you can find this background in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. That's where I gleaned this particular background from. So in this sphere, Isaiah is told to go out and meet Ahaz and give him a message. In chapter 7, verse 3, it says to Ahaz, he says to Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, Ahaz, I want you to take your little boy with you. I don't know, the little boy might have been just like Joshua was up here. I don't know how old the little boy was, but he was a little boy. Strange to me that God would tell Isaiah to take his little son and go out and meet Ahaz and give him a message. But that's what he told him, he said, take your little boy. Go out to meet Ahaz and give him this message. And you'll find it in the scriptures. But basically the summary is this. Take care, Ahaz. Be calm. Have no fear. Don't be faint-hearted. Because these two stubs of firebrands will not succeed in their plan. 
You know, they're like little pieces of firewood. They're going to be burned up. In fact, they died in, in, within two years, but Ahaz didn't know that. Isaiah says their plan will not be successful, nor will it come to pass. Ahaz, do you believe me? Ahaz, do you believe me? If you don't believe me, you too are going to fall. Well, this creates a dilemma for Ahaz. He's not been trusting God up to this point. He's already sent gold and silver to buy protection from Assyria. If he's going to believe Isaiah, then he's going to have to begin to transfer his trust from Assyria to God, and that puts him in kind of a dilemma. In fact, God puts a little bit more pressure on him and says, um, Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask for any sign you want. Make it as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Ask for anything, anything as deep or as high as you can come up with, and I'll give you a sign so that you can believe me and trust me that these two smoldering firebrands are not going to be successful in their plan against you. Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ahaz comes up with an answer. It sounds real pious and real godly. He says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to test my God. Well, I don't think it was a very pious answer at all. I don't think he wanted a sign. What would happen if he asked for a sign and the sign came true? Then he's going to have to retract his messengers and somehow relinquish his alliance with Assyria and begin to trust God. So he, I don't think it was a very pious answer. He didn't want a sign. He didn't want the sign to come true. It's an interesting set of verses, and then it says in verse 14, which is our controversial passage, that God's going to give him a sign anyway. And here's the sign. It's still up there. Therefore, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Even though you didn't want one, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and hear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and to choose good. The hand of whose, those whose two kings will you dread will be forsaken. The land will be forsaken. Wow. Well, there's two, this is controversial for two reasons. Number one, the uh, word um, for virgin, which is um, Alma, translated in, in, in the Hebrew. What does that mean? And the second controversy is, if this is something far in the future, 700 years in the future, how can it be assigned to Ahaz who is being bothered by these two smaller nations? He's not going to be around in 700 years to know that it was a sign. So let me address those two points. First word, um, the Hebrew word for virgin here is Alma, and it's translated virgin, but in every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's referring to an unmarried woman. No scholar disagrees with that, that the word Alma here, translated virgin, refers every time to an unmarried woman. So I'd like to suggest to you, if this unmarried woman is not a virgin, how would it be a sign? Would God be endorsing and promising a sign that involves fornication and illegitimacy? It doesn't sound possible to me that God would sanction sin and make that a sign to Ahaz. So the word means virgin. Secondly, the Hebrew scholars who wrote this and then translated the Hebrew into the Greek, into the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, they translated the Hebrew into the Greek 200 years before Christ came on the scene. They knew what the word meant. When they translated it into Greek, they used the Greek word parthenos, which very clearly, without question, without any doubt, means virgin. So I think that takes care of the, the first controversy. The word does mean virgin. 
The second argument is, well, how can then this be assigned to Ahaz when it's 700 years in the future? Well, some would argue at this particular point that there's, there's a, what they call a double fulfillment. There must have been a young woman that Ahaz and maybe Isaiah knew. She was not married. She was a virgin, and she's about to be married or, or just about to be married, and she's going to have a baby within the next year, and this would be assigned to Ahaz. This is called double fulfillment. I reject that method of interpreting the scripture to say that a prophecy has double fulfillment, one immediate and one in the future. I think that confuses prophecy and makes some of the things subjective. So what's really taking place here? What I think we have here are two signs. Two signs, two specific signs, two specific fulfillments. And when I learned this, it began to make sense for me, and I just want to share with you what helped me understand what this is about. When I was told and, and, and pointed out to me in the Hebrew use of the words in the Hebrew grammar, that, that would indicate then that there are two signs here and two fulfillments. There were three areas here. The word you, and I'm going to read this to you and put it all together here in a second. The word you, when we translate it into English, we're not sure whether it's a singular you or a plural you. So that's the first clue, and I'll show it to you in a minute. The second clue is the word behold in this prophecy and what it means. And the third clue of Hebrew grammar here is using the word the in front of the word virgin and in front of the word boy. Now that sounds all confusing. Now I'm going to put it all together. It's going to be on the screen in one section of Scripture and see if we can make sense out of this. Okay, here we go. I'm going to start with verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, that's northern, the northern kingdom. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remalia, that was Pekah. If you, singular, Ahaz, if you, Ahaz, will not believe, you, singular, Ahaz, will not surely last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, ask for yourself, singular, Ahaz, from the Lord, make it as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. But I, Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you, plural? Who's he talking to now? You, plural, house of David, he's talking to now. To try the patience of men that you, plural, house of David, will try the patience of God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, who? The house of David will give you, a sign. So the sign that's about to be given is to the house of David, not to Ahaz. Behold, there's a second clue. I am taught and told that the way the word behold is used in here when it's used with the present participle must refer to a future event. So it's referring to a future event, to the, to the, to the house of David. Now the next one it says, a virgin the correct translation is the virgin. The King James translation has it right here. The virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, when, it, when the word the, the, appears in front of the word virgin here, the Hebrew grammar demands that you look in the context to see what other woman or virgin is being spoken about. There is no other woman in the context of Isaiah chapter 7 or in the preceding chapters. So the scholars who understand the Hebrew grammar here say that this refers all the way back to the woman spoken of in Genesis 3.15 where it says the seed of the woman will be the one that crushes Satan's head. The very first clue that we had of the promised one, the one that would be sent to crush the head of Satan, 
Here's the next clue we, we get about that woman. It would be her seed. She would be a virgin. It would be her seed. And the child would be a son, and he would be named Emmanuel. Then, then we can continue on with the third clue. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He, he will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy, there's that same Hebrew grammar again. What boy, it says the boy means, look in the context, what boy are we talking about? The only other boy in the context is Isaiah's son, the one that he was told to take with him. The boy, Isaiah's son, before Isaiah's son will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings, you, singular, Ahaz, will dread, will be forsaken. Then the Lord will bring on you, Ahaz, and your people and on your father's home such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So I suggest to you this morning that there are two prophecies, two signs, probably be the more accurate way to say it, with two fulfillments. The first one was to the house of David, which is future. It's a sign to the house of David, not to Ahaz, that a son would be born to a virgin. His name would be called Emmanuel. It took place 700 years later. The second sign, which was to Ahaz, to know that these two kings will not be successful in their conspiracy against him, will be, is this. Ahaz, before this little boy... Isaiah is saying, before my little boy right here, son, is old enough to know and distinguish between moral good and evil, the, this plan of these two kings will not be successful and the threat will be removed. I think that brings clarity to, to, to chapter 7 of Isaiah, which is one of the most controversial chapters on Messianic prophecy. Two signs, each have their own fulfillment, each different. One for Ahaz, one for the house of Judah. That's my first objective. Don't go home, though. Just wait. I, got I want to give you now ten reasons to believe that Jesus' conception was miraculous and that Mary was born of a virgin. And here in this particular verse was the first reason. Isaiah prophesied it. Isaiah said it. I think Isaiah had to speak the truth. If Isaiah was not speaking the truth about this, then, then I have to call into question, what else did he say about this one? In chapter 9, in just a couple of chapters ahead, he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On his throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it and be on it forever and ever. Well, if Isaiah is not telling the truth about a virgin giving birth, to this one who's been promised, is he telling the truth about the same one who's going to reign on the earth and be king forever? I, I would have to doubt that too. Then what about in chapter 53, when Isaiah gives that whole wonderful portion that's so familiar to many of us, a part of which says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastising for our well-being was upon him, and in his scourging we are healed. So he's predicting that the same one now is going to be the one who's going to pay the penalty for our sins. So my first reason for me to be convinced that this is a virgin birth is Isaiah said it. And I have to believe that Isaiah is telling the truth. Because if not, then I have to be confused or have doubts about what else he said about him ruling as a king and about him bearing our sin on the cross and so on and so forth. So my first reason is Isaiah said it. My second and third reason come from this portion of Scripture. It's in Matthew. 
Chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill which was spoken of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, by the way. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, for they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. My second reason from this particular portion of Scripture is that Matthew believed it. Matthew believed that um, Jesus' conception was by a virgin and miraculous. He wrote about it. In the very first chapter of Matthew's book, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes Hosea, he quotes Micah, he quotes Jeremiah. Then in the rest of the book, which was distributed, he, he talks about the events, the sayings, the activities in Jesus' life. He talks about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. If, Jesus, if Matthew is wrong in chapter 1, which I don't think he is, then what about the rest of that which he wrote? My second reason to believe that the conception was miraculous is because Matthew believed it, wrote about it, and wrote many more things. My third reason is Joseph in this context. Now, Joseph knew he wasn't the father. Otherwise, why would he conspire and think in his mind, I need to put her away, I cannot marry her. I, I, I want to put her away privately. Do you know that Joseph was bound by law not to marry her? And that Mary was under the threat of being stoned to death. They were under the law, it was written in Deuteronomy. Let me read you the verse. Deuteronomy 22, there's a whole chapter there on these types of issues, but 23 and 24 particularly. If there's a girl who's a virgin, engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the city gate, and you shall stone them to death. Purge this evil from among you. So that was the penalty that could have been carried out against Mary. Joseph knew he wasn't the father. So he's planning to put her away. What happened? An angel appeared to Joseph. A holy angel, an angel confirmed in holiness, cannot lie. Right? I guess. Says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary. That which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's a miracle. Joseph became convinced. I don't know how easy... It would be to convince. I've never had an angel come to me and say anything to know how quickly I would respond. But he changed his attitude, changed his behavior, took Mary as his wife. So my first reason was Isaiah. My second reason was Matthew. My third reason is Joseph's change of attitude and behavior. My fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh reason come from this portion of Scripture. I bet you were glad to hear a whole bunch of them at once. <laughs> Luke 1, 26 to 35. Now in the sixth month, 
The angel Gabriel, here we have a name of the, of the angel, Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of God, Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to Gabriel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. My fourth reason is Gabriel's appearance. It's interesting to me that Gabriel appeared to Mary. Let me tell you why that's interesting to me. Six months earlier, we have another appearance by Gabriel. Remember Zechariah and Elizabeth? Zechariah and Elizabeth married for many years, old and, and beyond um, childbearing age. Elizabeth had been barren all of her life. They had prayed all their life for a son. They'd never received a son. Zechariah is performing his priestly duties in the temple, and Gabriel appears to him and says, Zechariah, your prayers are answered. You're going to have a son. <laughs> yeah, miraculous conception, but in the normal way. They were of, they were of, of advanced age. So what's interesting to me is, to whom did Gabriel appear in that setting? The father. He didn't appear to Elizabeth. He appeared to Zechariah. Who did Gabriel appear to in this passage? Mary. Why did he have to appear to Mary? He didn't have to appear to Elizabeth. He had to appear to Mary because Mary was a virgin. Now, if Gabriel was the same angel that appeared to Joseph, that doesn't change it. He did appear to Mary, and because of, he appeared to Mary, that's my fourth reason. I'm convinced that that was a special, miraculous conception. The fifth reason is Gabriel's message. It's very interesting to me what Gabriel said in this text. I've read it many times. Gabriel said to Mary, he says, he's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord's going to give him the throne of David. He's going to reign forever in the house of Jacob. His kingdom's going to have no end. Again, we have a holy angel, one confirmed in his holiness, cannot lie, saying all these things about this one that's going to be born. If I don't believe that, if that's not truth, then can I believe what Gabriel told other people? Do you know that Gabriel spoke to Daniel in the Old Testament on two occasions? Daniel in chapter 8 was confused. He didn't understand the visions given him. And Gabriel came to him and said, Daniel, I'm going to explain to you the visions that you just saw. Daniel, I'm going to let you know what's going to occur in the final period of indignation. I'm going to explain to you what pertains to the appointed time of the end. He's explaining to Daniel what Mark is explaining to us in Revelation. We haven't come to that particular part yet, but Gabriel's explaining it to Daniel. If that's not the truth, then maybe we should stop our study of Revelation. I know that's a negative statement. 
But he also said to Daniel in chapter 9 of Daniel, Gabriel appeared to him again. Again, Daniel needed explanation. And Gabriel is the one that explained to Daniel that whole sequence about the 77s, the 70 periods of seven years. He said how after 69 years, after 69 sevens, the Messiah would be cut off for a time, predicting the crucifixion of Christ. And then he talked about the last, the 70th seven period of seven years, which was going to be the words he talks about, there'll be desolations and there'll be a covenant with Israel. And in the middle of that seven years, it's going to be an abomination. Daniel is being instructed by Gabriel on all these things. So my fifth reason is because of what Gabriel told Mary, it's got to be true. He spoke to Daniel, interpreted the truth for Daniel. We now have it in Revelation. So Gabriel's message is my fifth reason. My sixth reason from this passage is Mary. Mary knew she was a virgin, and after all, the, all that Gabriel had presented to her, she stands there humbly and says, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel explains it to her, and she accepts it and believes that that which is in her is a miraculous conception. Her words that followed her belief in the entire Magnificat that's recorded there in Luke, and then her behavior and the little clues that we get when Jesus was growing up is my sixth reason for being convinced. My seventh reason is that who wrote this? It was Luke, Dr. Luke. He recorded this in his book. As a physician, I think he probably knew a little bit about birth, probably been president on a lot of births. He not only recorded this, distributed it, he also quoted about the activities, life, events in Jesus' life, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which again describes Christ's ascension into heaven, his promised return, and the beginning and the expansion of the church. Wow, a lot of truth will be doubted if we don't believe Luke's account of the, of the birth of the virgin. So here's so far my seven reasons. One, Isaiah said it. Two, Joseph, Matthew said it and believed it. Three, Joseph believed it, changed his attitude and behavior. Fourth, Gabriel appeared to Mary. He didn't appear to Elizabeth. Fifth, because of what Gabriel said. Sixth, Mary knew and was convinced by listening to Gabriel, and her words and attitude were remarkable after that appearance. And seventh, Luke, the physician who wrote about it. My eighth reason comes from Elizabeth's response to Mary. It's found in Luke 1, 39 to 45. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and said this. Here's what Elizabeth said to Mary. They're cousins. Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And now it has happened to you. Uh, and now how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken of to her by the Lord. 
I'm not sure. I mean, this has to be a miraculous conception. Would this be the normal response of a near relative, a cousin, to say to her if this was an illegitimate baby? Would Elizabeth say, blessed are you among women and say all these things to her? I don't think so. That's my eighth reason because of Elizabeth's response. My ninth reason is the testimony of God the Father himself. And I saw this in the last week or so. I said, wow. In Hebrews 1.6, it says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Here we have the Father directing the angels to worship the firstborn. Remember back in Luke when we talked about the the uh, shepherds were on the hillside and they were tending their sheep and all of a sudden an angel appeared to them and announced the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. They could go see it. And then we have in Luke 2, 13 and 14 the following statement. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Notice what we have here. The angels and what they said. For untold angels... For untold ages, angels worship their creator. For untold ages, angels veil their face in his presence. But one night, their mighty creator stepped off his heavenly throne, set aside his deity and glory, and entered the body of a little babe. What then should angels do? They know the command, thou shalt worship the Lord God, and in him only shalt thou worship. Do they break this first commandment and dare worship someone who's not God? But the Father leaves no doubt in his mind, in their mind, when he turns to the myriad of angels and says, all of you angels worship the babe. Well, the very fact that God directly commanded the angels to worship, worship him convinces me again for the ninth time that this had to be a conception that was miraculous. God would not direct angels to worship one who was born out of wedlock. My tenth reason and final reason, not the least important, not the last one that came to my mind. In fact, it was the first one that came to my mind. I learned this years ago. I didn't understand it when I first learned it, what it meant. But as years have gone by now, I understand it. We get the first clue in Luke 2.4. It says, And Joseph went up out of Galilee and out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Here we know, and we know from many sources, that Joseph was a descendant of David. In Matthew chapter 1, all the way through verses 16, we're not going to read them. It's very, very boring. It talks about who begot who begot who begot who. But what we have here is the lineage and the descendants of Abraham all the way down to Joseph. We know that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac of Jacob, and Jacob of Judah. And we go all the way down to David. So we know that David is a descendant of Abraham. Then it goes from David all the way down to Joseph. So we now know that Joseph is a descendant of David, okay? We know that um, it's the descendants of David that are qualified to sit on the throne of David uh, and be in the kingdom. So if Joseph is a descendant 
of David, he qualifies then to be king over Judah, right? Can I have a nod? Okay, either this way or this way. It's this way. He qualifies. Now, if Joseph qualifies to sit on the throne of David, doesn't Joseph's sons qualify to sit on the throne of David? Yes, thank you. All right, now we have a problem. And here's the verse of scripture that when I showed this years ago, didn't understand it, now do, and I'm amazed by it. It's in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. In between David and Joseph is a, is a, is a descendant named Coniah or Jeconiah, who's in that kingly descendant. So Joseph is not only a descendant of David, he's also a descendant of Jeconiah, found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Very, very wicked and ungodly king. Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they have not known? Babylon. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days, here it is, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Oops. Any descendant of, of, of Jeconiah or Coniah now is disqualified. That just disqualifies Joseph, right? That disqualifies any son of Joseph. Does that disqualify Jesus from then sitting on the throne? Yes. Unless... Unless he's not Joseph's natural son. And he can't be, because he's born of a virgin. That's my tenth reason. First was Isaiah. Second was Matthew. Third was Joseph. Fourth was Gabriel's appearance. Fifth was Gabriel's message. Sixth was Mary. Seventh was Luke. Eighth was Elizabeth. Ninth was the testimony of God the Father himself. And tenth was the lineage of David and the curse on Jeconiah. You see, if, if we mess around with one of the doctrines of Scripture, it has a rippling effect that's enormous. It means that so many other portions of Scripture could be called into question. It means that many people have lied. It means that Jesus maybe was not really the Son of God. It means that maybe his substitute penalty for sin is not effective means maybe he doesn't qualify to be king and sit on the throne. All these things, the rippling effect is we, we can't let it go that way. We can't give in one inch. We can't compromise at all. Jesus was born of a virgin. Friends, please stick to the fundamentals. Don't deny them. Jesus was born of a virgin. He died as a substitute for our sin. He was buried. He was resurrected. The reasons that I gave you, I stand here today and declare to you that Jesus was born of a virgin. To change that changes everything. I refuse to be drawn into the vacuum of God insensitivity and scriptural denial and declare that it doesn't really matter. It matters a lot. It's absolute truth. If these ten reasons are significant for you and you want a copy, I, just, I put a one page summary. It's out on the table in the back there. It's on a yellow sheet of paper. You certainly can pick up the 10 reasons. Also, before you leave today, there's one last opportunity to join a small study group which begins in early January. 
There are three opportunities out there. One, if you're not familiar with it, is called the Truth Project, which gives you a foundation to know how do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know what's good and, and bad in, in our behavior? Our whole foundation begins with uh, worldview, and the Truth Project is a 13-week study on worldview. The other opportunity out there is a study of the book, A Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism. Answers some of the questions like, why does God allow suffering in the world? How could God, a loving God, send people to hell? And those types of questions. And the third study out there is a, almost like a Bible school study, and it's, and it's called Come and See, and that will also begin in January. So if you were intending to sign up and you haven't had a chance to sign up for that, please do that. May these truths and may this quick review allow you and help you to worship God with a capital W and not a small W. God bless and Happy New Year to you.